Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. We have a jam-packed program today. Second hour is the third in our series devoted to veterans' issues, and we're inviting military veterans to call in about benefits. That's our focus from health care next hour through housing assistance, financial assistance to go to college, and for those disabled as a result of military service, what sorts of assistance is available for those vets as well. That's all coming up next hour. We have a panel of experts whose expertise is in each of those areas, so please feel free to call or if you're a family member of a military veteran, it's a great chance to get your questions answered as we focus today in our series on benefits for military veterans. Later this hour, the drummer of the great rock group, The Doors, John Densmore, is with me. We'll be talking with him about his new memoir, much of which details the fraught relationship that he had with two of his bandmates uh, and their legal travails. But a fascinating look at a truly one-of-a-kind rock band. But we begin the program with a new study out of the UCLA Labor Center. It examines the conditions of California's more than 2 million young workers. That demographic is age 16 to 24. Many of them are working part-time hours while still going to school. Others are employed full-time. Joining us to talk about the findings of the study is our LAist All Things Considered producer, Libby Rainey. Libby, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's talk, first of all, just about uh, a couple of the big takeaways of this. We've had a pandemic which has rocked uh, all employment sectors. We've seen wage increases uh, go most to entry-level workers because of the demand and shortage of, of labor. What does this study detail in terms of, of, of what's happening to younger workers? Yeah, so what what this study really found is that young people, as you said, more than 2 million of people between the ages of 16 and 24 are working, maybe full-time, maybe part-time. A lot of them are working quite a lot of hours, and they make, on average, really low wages. So sixteen fifty an hour in 2022 was the average for that age group, and uh, that's compared to $27 an hour for ages 25 and up. Now, some listeners might be thinking, well, yeah, I worked some jobs where I got pretty low pay when yeah. I was 20 years old. And part-time. Sometimes jobs too. typically will pay lower per hour as well. Right. You probably got a higher percentage of part-time workers here. Right. But what what this study also really looks at is how many young workers, one, are working full-time and two, are struggling to make ends meet. So these jobs are not just, say to save some money for college or something like that. But a lot of workers, I think it's close to 60%, reported some difficulties paying ex- paying expenses. And a lot of them were experiencing rent burden as well. So what this really found is young workers are working, and a lot of them are struggling to get by. 
Yeah. And I wonder how different that is from earlier generations, because it's not uncommon, of course, in Southern California for entry level workers to commute great distances, live out in the Inland Empire, commute to jobs in central L.A. for minimum wage, because uh, even before we had the explosion in the cost of housing, it was simply on the wages you would get. Not, not uh, people were not able to live close to their jobs. That's part of how we've got our sprawl. Right, and and you know one one thing that that the study found and what researchers were saying that I found really interesting was that you know there's sort of this expectation maybe in the zeitgeist that okay you're going to work this job it's low paying but you're a young person and you're going to end up in a higher paying job eventually and, and what what the this study is sort of showing is is that that these outcomes aren't always happening for young people so there's some concern and I heard it I spoke to a lot of young workers they're saying I'm looking at my prospects and I'm not really seeing how this $17 an hour job is leading me to something more stable where I can live on my own where I can afford my expenses well let's examine why that might be. Joining us is Yana Shattuck-Hernandez, project director at the UCLA Labor Center and a faculty member within the UCLA Labor Studies Program. She's co-author of the report titled California's Workers Clocked in Ages 16 to 24. Thank you so much, Ms. Shattuck-Hernandez, for joining us. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for having me. So uh, what appear to be the barriers to people moving up, younger workers who are in these entry-level jobs? Because all we hear about is the labor shortage. Baby boomers are, are starting to retire, that we need more young workers and don't have enough of them. So what's happening? Well, young workers, as Libby um, clearly said, are really um, the backbone to our economy and to the future of the California labor movement. Yet they are concentrated primarily in restaurant and retail jobs and in different um, regions across the state in warehouses or in agriculture, depending on where they live. But a lot of this is that there are really no other opportunities for them. They are struggling in many cases, um, having finished high school or college, but still um, finding themselves in entry level frontline jobs that really um, have no prospects for future um, mobility. So we find that this study gives us like this unique opportunity to really see what is happening with this population, what are their working conditions, and what is their role and our role as um, educators, policymakers, uh, labor movement um, leaders in really developing the future of this labor force, which is critical to this vibrant economy. Um, the when- in the in when you compare how long people stay in entry-level jobs now versus in the past, because that would be the way to get it, whether there's blockage to advancement, what do we see? What percentage of younger minimum wage workers, let's say a decade ago versus today, could move up? Um, certainly a decade ago, there were a lot more opportunities when we consider um, that a college uh, degree allowed uh, students in that case to move up very quickly. Um, we're not seeing that same sort of mobility now, uh, and we're certainly not seeing that with this generation of young workers. Um, as far as comparing the, the decades, I can't give you the exact data of what the differences are, but we do know that a decade ago and even 20 years ago, having a college degree and even a high school degree allowed you to move within manufacturing or other kinds of industries 
and have greater mobility. We're seeing that in this generation, due to COVID, also due to um, just that there are, you know, the push to cre- increase the minimum wage, the push to actually create other job opportunities are met with a lot of resistance. And so um, young workers are finding themselves um, staying in these jobs for much longer than their prior cohorts. So are there are there fewer then of these move-up mid-level positions available or are employees staying in those jobs longer? What, what What's clogging up the advancement of the younger workers? Um, I think what we're seeing is really that there's a bit of both. There are a need to keep the um, wages and the opportunities low. Many of the employers do not want to create those opportunities for mobility within their companies, provide them with benefits, with some of the protections. They want entry-level workers who will do sort of the minimum wage jobs, but really not creating those pathways within these companies to um, advance their workers. So this is what we're seeing is that we're not, there's, there, that pipeline is not available for young people. And um, many of the employers in these industries are just not really wanting to create um, more stable and economic sort of viable jobs for them. They're, they're, a lot of their bottom line is based on just turnaround and an endless source of young workers coming in. And, and not only young workers, but also middle-aged and older workers. Um, and so this is really the problem, that we need to have like deep conversations around workforce development and what are the equitable pipelines that um, employers as part of the members of our society will take to really create those pipelines for advancement within the same companies or um, professions. But but don't we first have to understand what's clogging up the system? What Who is in those positions that are the move-up positions? What's getting them stuck there? What... Because if you don't, if you can't quantify that, and if we don't understand what's causing that, then I mean you can you can raise the benefits and pay for people in entry level positions, but they're still going to be stuck in jobs they probably don't want to be doing for the next twenty years. So don't we have to understand more holistically what's going on with the employment system? Yeah, I think you're right. This is part of like this is the first step of our. The first comprehensive study of really looking at, you know, um, this is uh, administrative data kind of conversations that we've had, um, looking at data. What is going on currently today with young workers? Um, I do believe that you're right. Like, this is the deeper conversation that we have to take to our workforce development board, to our education system. What is actually happening? Why are young workers stuck in these jobs? and not being able to move out. And I think this is really for the next level of research that we're going to call on um, fellow colleagues within the universities, but also within our um, employment sector to really think about how do we um, unclog the system, as you say, Larry, and really make it a viable mobile and sustainable system for all workers. We're talking with Yana Shattuck-Hernandez, project director at the UCLA Labor Center, faculty member within the UCLA Labor Studies Program. She co-wrote the report, California's Workers Clocked In. It looks at ages 16 to 24 workers, part and full-time in California. And uh, what the study indicates is uh, for many of those that are working in these entry-level jobs, they're financially insecure, uh, housing 
housing, of course, given it's California, is exorbitant compared to what they make, meaning they're often living with family members well into their mid-20s, living with friend groups or or um, living with others to try and share the cost or living outside the area and having to commute. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Again, I'm interested in hearing from you if you are employed a between the ages of 16 and 24, could be part or could be full-time, what are you and your peers experiencing about opportunities to move up, how your education might or might not be used in what you do? Do you feel like there's any benefit to the educational level you have or an additional educational level you might be contemplating? If you're an employer of younger workers between the ages of 16 and 24, I'm interested in hearing your experiences and what you're, are you able to move younger people up? Are there things that keep you from moving them up? And what are those? 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and your first name. Um, I, I wonder, Yana, if part of this um, could also be stereotypes about younger workers. We often hear complaints about younger workers and their um, communication skills. And if they would be moving up into managerial positions where communication skills are central, might part of this be an employer bias against younger workers? Or as employers might say, well, I'm not biased. It's the reality. I see this in younger workers. Could this be a factor? This has been, a, I think, one of the, um, the the questions that um, a lot of employers have said that younger workers aren't prepared, don't have the skills, don't have the communication skills, or the workplace readiness skills to be able to move up. Um, we're finding that that's actually not the case. Um, young, younger people are more educated than ever before. They are coming into these entry level jobs with um, some, some some education and really having had other previous job experiences, oftentimes this is uh, a way for employers to also keep the wages low and not increase that wage floor for young workers because of these kinds of excuses. Certainly what we want to do is think about more opportunities for apprenticeship programs, paid internships, opportunities for young people to advance and learn new skills. Um, And these are the things that I think at the you know, Department of, uh, of Education and the Workforce Development um, uh, agencies are really thinking about how do we actually do that? How can we collaborate with employers and create really uh, high road pipelines where there's training opportunities and where we can see that young people are really the future of our, of our, of our state and not just someone who is still needing to stay behind because they don't have a particular set of skills. Well, they're going to have to move up at some point because there aren't going to be older people available to work in those jobs. Exactly. That idea of the generation replacement, right? This idea that this is the first, these are the first jobs that young people are having and we need to support them because they are going to be the next generation that is going to support those who are retiring or those who are moving into their elderly years and so this benefits all of us of investing in young people's future, in their, in their workforce development, in their growth, and also the socialization of being in a workplace that actually pays well, allows them to stay in a job for more than just a few months because um, they're not getting the kinds of schedules that they want. 
they're being um, docked on their pay. Oftentimes, young workers are victims of a lot of labor violations, no breaks, no lunch breaks, no, you know, not even often getting the minimum wage. Um, and, and so we see that when they experience these violations or workplace conditions that are not favorable, yeah. they also leave. Yeah, understand, really. Uh, Christine and Torrance says, when people talk about not being able to afford living on their own, they're saying it as, that, as though that's something that people have been able to do in the past. No, Christine, that's an excellent point. I mean, maybe if we go back to uh, early 20th century Los Angeles, the single-room occupancy hotels downtown where railroad workers were able to live in a small room and had a bathroom at the end of the hall. Yes, for entry-level workers, uh, greater Los Angeles, has not been an affordable place for people to live by themselves for many, many I mean, very long time. Um, but of course, with the cost of housing, it's only gotten worse. Uh, Michelle in Inglewood, I understand you employ a number of young people. What are some of the things that you find about your younger workers? Sure. Uh, we take a tremendous amount of pride. I am a family-owned uh, franchisee business, and we hire many high school and college-aged kids. And we, you know, the, the notion that we are doing anything to prevent them and their upward movement is just not true. We have four classes a year that we provide internally where we promote people to entry-level management, and then they have opportunities to move on to higher management. Uh, we have general managers in our organization that have worked with us for decades. Uh, we have many who own homes, whose children have gone to college, who love working with us. Um, and, you know, the, the comment that, oh, there's these rampant violations and we don't give people breaks is just not true. Does that happen on occasion? Of course, because no workplace is perfect. But we take a tremendous amount of pride in, in the opportunities to give people their first job ever. Um, and people who want to stay with us, great. And we hope that they will have a career with us and others who choose to use this as a launching pad because of the skill, because of the camaraderie, because of the things that they get when they work for us. Um, we are happy to see them go yeah. as well because this is an, this is movement for them. So, well, and, and what's the advantage, Michelle, what's the advantage for you as a business owner of uh, of uh, uh, giving people within your own organization advancement versus having to hire people from elsewhere into those higher-level positions? Two reasons. One, we like the opportunity to work with people. We consider our employees to be family. So we want to build relationships with them. We want to see them grow and develop. But even beyond that, as a business person, it is far more expensive to train someone completely new than it is to continue to grow and train and develop the people who already work for you. So it's a win-win for us both ways. Yeah. We want them to stay. Michelle, I appreciate your call very much, your firsthand experience. And, and it makes sense. And I guess it gets back to the, this question I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. Yana Shattuck Hernandez, because the incentive for employers would be to have people that they know move up into those positions to not have to go outside the organization. So it just it seems like there's really important work here. If, in fact, we're finding a clog in the system, what is that barrier? And I really want to appreciate um, Michelle's comment, because I think Michelle is one of these high road employers. This is what we're striving for, to have employers 
like Michelle, who are thinking about turnover is costly, training young workers, providing them those kinds of opportunities so that they can grow within that firm or move on and go to college and get more skills or move on to a new job and have that kind of support from their employers. It sounds like, you know, this is, she is the model employer. Sadly, though, there are many employers who don't follow that path. And we, you know, particularly the large businesses and where young workers are concentrated are restaurant and retail, where we see that there is high turnover, that there really is unstable schedules, that they're not able to have a guaranteed sort of amount of hours per week. We're trying to change that with new legislation, both in the city and the county of Los Angeles, so that there can be guaranteed hours um, and advanced and predictable schedules. But a lot of young people in our survey and in talking with lots yeah. of folks um, through are, are just not seeing that the larger businesses are um, are able to provide like what Michelle has has just outlined. OK, Yana, um, uh, so let me let me just break in. I'm sorry, because we're so tight on time. And I want to go back uh, to our Libby Rainey, all things considered producer at LAist, who's uh, written about the study. You can find it at LAist.com. You can find her in-depth piece on this. But just Libby, in closing, what what are the findings regarding those that are unionized jobs versus those that aren't? Yeah, and that's where a lot of this wonderful conversation has me thinking is about uh, one thing we haven't yet discussed is how unions can change outcomes for workers. So one thing that the study found is that young workers are unionized at way lower rates than older workers, uh, just at 9%. And it really clearly indicates that better outcomes, there are better outcomes for younger workers when they're unionized. That's another path to solid uh, employment where your wages continue to go up and you can look at a real middle-class solid lifestyle. And I spoke to uh, a young person named Ella Clark, who's a Starbucks, who was a Starbucks worker when she was 17. She was working 20 hours a week and she uh, was part of a big union effort at yeah. her store. And so I think one thing to see here too is there's a movement of young people that are saying we want better at work. And another way to do that is to unionize. And so I thought that was interesting. Anecdotally, I spoke to maybe five or six young workers and they all talked about the power of unions and how they're hearing more about that. So I was really, it struck me that that rate is so low, but there seems to be a lot of interest. Obviously, there are a lot of barriers to unionizing, particularly retail or service jobs, but there clearly is an interest from this this younger yeah. generation. I uh, Thank you so much, Libby Rainey, joining us. And our thanks to UCLA's Yana Shattuck-Hernandez. Uh, Yana directs the uh, UCLA Labor Center project director there and co-author of the report we've been talking about. Coming up, on AirTalk, we'll take a look about a concern that's been raised at a number of American high schools, most recently one in New Jersey, where AI-generated nude or sexually explicit images of students have been shared. What sorts of uh, tools are available for students to fight back against this? We'll find out when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. John Densmore, the drummer of the doors, joins us in just a few minutes. But we turn our attention to the story you might have seen out of a high school in New Jersey where uh, a number of students, girls at that school, had uh, images that were created through artificial intelligence, images of them uh, that involved nudity or sexually explicit images. And this has raised concerns because it's being seen with a variety of young people who have had these images uh, that have been uh, dispersed throughout schools. Joining us to talk about what's available for people to fight back against these images being shared is Marianne Franks, Professor of IP, Technology, and Civil Rights Law at George Washington University School of Law. Professor Franks is also the president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Professor, thank you for being with us. What does the law say about the use of AI to create these images and the ability of someone targeted with these images to fight back against it? The short answer is that the law doesn't say very much, and it depends on which state you're in, because there isn't a federal law that covers this yet, although legislation has been recently introduced. So depending on where you are, there may be some criminal prohibitions on the uses of digital uh, manipulation to create what looks like child pornography. But in the vast majority of states, the kind of images that we're talking about, the creation and the disclosure of these images, is not something that is expressly prohibited by law. So for a, a parent of a student who has had this happen to her, um, what what do you recommend that they do? Well, the first thing, I think, is to assess where the your, your child is in the process of, of thinking about what has happened to them and what their needs are, because this can be incredibly psychologically distressing. It can have any number of uh, very serious effects. And so I think the first thing is to figure out what does the child need in the circumstances, but then to think creatively about the kinds of legal or other options you might have. If this happens in a school, then you obviously want to be speaking to the school find out what they are doing about this, how they're going to prevent this from happening again. You can consider legal action against the school if it rises to the level of a form of uh, prohibited discrimination. You can think about tort suits, you know, hire a lawyer and think about whether you can sue somebody for defamation or other types of theories. So you can you can do some things, but right now the law really hasn't caught up very well to this kind of technology-facilitated abuse. We're talking with George Washington University Law School professor Marianne Franks, also with us the founder of EndTab, that's End Technology Enabled Abuse, an organization providing training to victim service organizations, judges, and law enforcement handling deep fake and tech abuse cases. Adam Dodge. Adam, thank you for being 
working with us in a case like this New Jersey high school where you've got a number of students targeted with these AI-generated images. They have been, according to, to the girls, targeted widely shared among members of the campus. How would you proceed to help the girls who've been victimized here in a case like this? Well, I think one really powerful thing we can do with someone who's been targeted with this type of abuse is one, acknowledge the harm that even though these photos are fake, the harm is very real. And this is a very traumatizing and impactful experience and always be sure to believe them because having worked with people who have experienced this, they, at least part of them is expecting to not be believed because the photos look so hyper-realistic. And when we believe them, we create space for them to be seen, heard, and encouraged to seek help. The other thing that we can do is not focus just on the victims here, but also on the people who are creating and sharing these images and helping them understand that this is not a harmless act, This is not funny, but it's actually an act of tech-facilitated sexual violence. And it's something that we wouldn't do in the physical world. We certainly shouldn't do it online either. So for if if those individuals would would just you know brush this off uh, and say oh well it's not real what's the harm uh, you know this isn't really the person what do you say to someone who who minimizes the damage from their actions? I'll often give them an example where I'll say because I hear this a lot. I'll tell them if you were a sixteen year old girl walking down the hallway of your school and you came up across a group of students crowded around a phone. And when you saw what they were looking at was a video or photo of you in the nude or engaging in sex acts. If you think that that girl walks away from that experience unaffected, you're you're so wrong. And, And when I put it in that context, people really understand that this is a disturbing and confusing form of abuse because it combines two really powerful forms of abuse. On one hand, misinformation, which has been around for a long time, spreading rumors, sabotaging relationships and academic and professional careers. And it involves image-based sexual abuse or the non-consensual distribution of intimate imagery, which is extremely traumatic and harmful. And once uploaded online is permanent. And if you're not digitally safe, you're not safe anywhere. And when you combine those things and have or force a young person to live the rest of their life with that hanging over their head, that is a deeply traumatic experience that people need to understand, acknowledge, and respect and be talking about so that we can hopefully prevent people from engaging in this behavior in the future. You have a website that people can go to for further information on how to combat this? Yeah, they can either visit endtab.org or the techsavvyparent.com. And uh, just want to give a hat tip to Professor Franks. Uh, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative is also an incredible resource uh, for victims and survivors and really anybody who wants to understand this area and make an impact. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Adam Dodge, the founder of End Technology Enabled Abuse, known as NTAP, and our thanks to George Washington University Law School Professor Marianne Franks. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3, back with the drummer of the doors, John Densmore, in just 90 seconds.
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. The great sound of the Doors, their hit song, Light My Fire. Two members of the Doors survive, and we're so pleased to have one of them joining us to talk about the tremendous history of the group, as well as his legal battles against uh, two of his fellow members of the Doors. Joining us is John Densmore, drummer of the group. You hear him right there with the beat. And his new book is The Doors Unhinged, Jim Morrison's Legacy Goes on Trial. John Densmore, it's great to have you with us. So many of us are huge fans of your work. Uh, You're a jazz drummer as well. Elvin Jones, I know a huge influence on you, uh, as well as, of course, your work with The Doors. Wow. Great to finally uh, see the face, that the <laughs> voice I know of. And I've never been here to PPC, KPPC, and uh, it's a great, great institution. Well, thanks. We now go by LAist, but, uh, oh, yeah, we go okay. back to those early early call uh, letters from when we were on the Pasadena City College campus many, many years ago. Um, so just share with us first, before we get into the legal issues about um, uh, art and commerce and, and about uh, the rules under which the doors operated, just to talk about the influence of the quartet. Jim Morrison, of course, songwriter, vocalist, Ray Manzarek, keyboardist, Robbie Krieger, guitarist, yourself as drummer, what do you when you think of the legacy of the Doors? What do you think of it as being? Uh, the drumming, Larry. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, I mean <laughs> we've got this incredible-looking singer who who has read every book on the planet and, and a wonderful poet. And Ray brings uh, Chicago blues and classical. Uh, the intro to "Light My Fire" da, 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 is kind of a baroque. Yeah, kind of thing. it is. Yeah. Robbie had flamenco and folk music, and I had jazz. So I guess we are uh, American gumbo, sort of a melting pot of all of that. 
you couldn't have imagined you would connect with listeners the way you did. I mean, even with all the talent that you represented. When did that become real to you that you broke through? Yeah, good question. Now, Larry, I hoped I could pay the rent for a, a, a decade. And uh, as you can see, my hair's gray, and it's 50 years later. I'm still talking about this friggin' band, <laughs> but uh, very blessed. So what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> about when did, when did you really feel oh, like, wow, correct. we broke through? Right, you know. right. Well, I would say, you know, we played small clubs. We were the house band at the Whiskey and then we started playing maybe second bill in small sort of philharmonic halls, a few thousand seats. And that was the moment for me where I thought, oh, my God, this, this train is leaving the station. We're going to make a living at this, you know. Uh, you know, the giant concerts were great, mass adulation or whatever. But really, that incubation period of taking off was really Exciting. It had to be exhilarating to be in that moment and to feel the creativity and that people are valuing it. And and to be able to make a, a living at something you love, you know, uh, what a blessing. Which know. for a lot of jazz musicians who you grew up admiring was a very tough thing to do. Very tough, yeah. You grew up, uh, you, you went to jazz clubs, I know, to see many of the different artists. Of course, we, we had so many, like the Lighthouse here and other places that sure. are, you know, famous venues for jazz artists. I and, went to all of them. Yeah, I, you I, went I, underage. I, <laughs> I did, too. <laughs> I got my fake ID from Tijuana, and I went to these clubs, and they, they looked at it and knew it was fake and let me in to see my heroes anyway. All right. John Densmore with us, drummer of, of The Doors. One of the organizational principles of the group was that any one of the four of you had veto power about any sort of financial deal that you would make. So it wasn't like a pure democracy of, you know, if you three votes versus one. The one really held the control. Share with us when that first came into play. Uh, we were rehearsing at uh, Robbie's parents' house and on a break uh, I remember Jim sort of sat up on top of the couch and said, hey, listen, um, I don't really know how to write songs. I've got words and music, but I don't know. I can't play a chord on any instrument. Well, let's just split everything. Let's not have lyrics by me, all music by the doors, and let's uh, split all the money. And if anyone gets a little weird, we should all have veto power. Well, Larry... <clears throat> I became Mr. Vito, I guess. <laughs> is that your drummer and vetoist? Is that uh, the position you have? <laughs> well, uh, the reason being that um, this offer came along, come on, Buick, light my fire. and Big and, money. Uh, yeah. Uh, and Jim said, well, yeah, great. Let's do a, a commercial on TV where I smash the car with a sledgehammer. Okay. Well, that's a no. <laughs> And, and, you know, Jim's no longer with us. He's my ancestor. And, and Larry, that meant he didn't write Light My Fire. He wrote one line, mm -hmm. uh, Our Love Become a Funeral Pyre, Morrison-esque line. But so that meant he cared about the whole catalog, all the songs, what, you know. And I want to honor that. And he's my ancestor, and I'm staying with that. Now, now a young band trying to play pay the rent, uh, you know, do a commercial if you need to, because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's hard out there. So you're not against no. music um, 
being turned into commercial purposes like that. No, but if you do get a, a toehold on success, you might want to reevaluate that decision because uh, Tom Waits said you turn your uh, lyrics into a jingle, it's the sound of coins in your pocket, and maybe you sold your audience. <laughs> in other words, your song is saying you got to have my product to be happy. Well, what I so let me just let me push back a bit because if it's a product, you don't have a moral argument against. Obviously, you know, artists, um, many of them are going to pick and choose what they're comfortable having their music associated with. But if it's a product you feel comfortable with, what's wrong with exposing it to younger listeners potentially through an ad? Nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, an electric car, something that sort of helps the environment or whatever. I, I'm, I'm. You'd open. be okay with that, yeah. So you're not, you're not against just blanket mixing the art with with that form of commerce, right? Okay, but uh, so for you, it's a matter of any one of the members could have veto over what the product would. So like Cadillac for you, which came down later, it was a Cadillac Escalade, wasn't it? Was the Correct. product that, that um, I don't remember what the song was, but you vetoed that. Yeah, break on through. Um, well, now Cadillac has an all-electric big car. Maybe uh So you might change. <laughs> if they came to you, if oh, they, yeah. Who knows? You know. Yeah. But this was a source of friction between you and your your fellow two surviving bandmates, and um, what? So what led you to hold firm in that? You know, if for them they felt it was an important part of of spreading the music of the Doors, what what made you not go with say, okay, guys, you feel strongly about this, that's okay? Well, I mean, Jim, uh, you know, really cared about those words he wrote, and so I I didn't want to break on through to a gas-guzzling SUV. I don't think he would have either. I mean, that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, I, he I, might I, have I, changed, though, over he the might years. Have. It's kind of like Disney always talks about what Walt would do as though he would stay at 1965 <laughs> Walt Disney. That's good, you know? Larry. Yeah, correct. I think that was Ray's point of view. And then I would say to them, uh, well, okay, so uh, er, we all have a, a nice house and a couple groovy cars. What do you want to buy? And there would be a pregnant pause. Mm, that was an interesting pause. Yeah. So you don't think it was necessarily about just the money? It was ego or exposure? Or, uh, well, or, or I guess you say the greed gene. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I coined this phrase because I made this commitment to donate 10% uh, to charity every year after I read in the 80s that uh, John Lennon did such. And when the Oliver Stone movie was out on the band... I. I'm, I'm writing the tithing checks, and my hand is shaking. Oh, oh, there's the hand of greed there, right there in me, you know, flowing Hard through. Hard to part with those funds. Yeah, yeah it, it money is a, a very curious uh, sort of addictive thing. But Bob Dylan said money doesn't talk, it swears. Let's listen to Break On Through the Doors. No one sounds like the Doors. We'll continue with John Densmore, drummer of the Doors, in just a minute.
From the L.A. Woman 1971 album release, The Doors' Lover Madly, we're talking with John Densmore, drummer of The Doors and author of the new book, The Doors Unhinged, Jim Morrison's Legacy Goes on Trial. What's central to the book is the lawsuit from the aughts in which uh, John Densmore sued his two surviving uh, co-members of The Doors when they went out on the road under the title The Doors of the 21st Century and used artwork associated with the original Doors. And it was John Densmore's view that it was deceptive for the public and that it really wasn't the doors, but uh, was being marketed uh, in a way that was misleading. John, let's let's talk a bit about that because we've had Creedence Clearwater revisited um, with two members without John Fogarty or Fogarty's brother going out on the road. And they made it very clear this was not Credence. John Fogarty would not be there, but they'd be performing this. What for you was different about an example like Credence Clearwater Revisited versus the doors of the 21st century? Excellent question. Uh, so uh, Credence Clearwater Revisited, it's very clear that it's not the original band. The doors of the 21st century. I'm whispering because they'd printed it so small you couldn't read it, and it was the original logo, and so I thought, oh, come on, man. I mean, the the doors without Jim, the the stones without Mick, the police without Sting. You gotta make it clear that it's not, you know, founding members, fine, whatever works, so that's my beef. So, and you were okay with um, of the doors beneath their names. So, uh, if it's Ray and Robbie of the doors, you didn't have a problem with using the name, but titling it the doors of the 21st century, you took issue with. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you had a summer long trial here in Los Angeles. You were in court, it sounded like every day, pretty much. And um, did at any point did you just wonder, was this really <laughs> worth this? Was this worth three months of my life? Sure. I, I, uh, I, that I would take to task my band members that we, you know, created magic in a garage in Venice. It's really, um, I thought, what am I doing? But, you know, in the long run, I feel better about it. And uh, we had a... a reconciliation. And, you know, bringing up credence is interesting because at the end of this book, I write a new afterword where I quote uh, John Fogarty uh, fighting for 30 years to get his songs back. Which he finally did. And, you know, he said, these are my babies. Exactly. Uh, Door songs are Jim's babies. And um, Credence Clearwater revisited. They prevailed in court because John Fogarty had sued over that. You prevailed in this case with Ray and Robbie, uh, the court siding with you that they could not market themselves as the doors of the 21st century. And um, did, did you feel at the end of that whole process, you know, validated by that and, and that it was worth the effort? I did. And uh, I was a little sad that I call, caused tension between us. And then uh, I heard that Ray was getting sick, and I gave him a phone call. And uh, it was still a little tension, and I was very pleased that he picked the phone up. Nobody does that anymore, right? And we talked about his illness, and he had cancer. 
And, um, you know, oh, we didn't talk about the trial. It was over. And I said, give my love to Dorothy, your wife. And it was a short phone call. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was the last, but it was closure, thank God. Then I said to Robbie, listen, you know, death trumps everything. Let's play some music or do something. And we played at LACMA. And it was such One a... One of the Friday concerts there? Or, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, two, three hundred seater. Such a sweet evening. Just the two of us. And we said to the audience, you know, we're not singers. Would you help out? <laughs> and the first song, People Are Strange, they all sang. Oh, that's great. Really touching. That's great. So are, are you... Closure. Are, are, yeah. And would you say that you're, you've repaired with Robbie? Yes, sure. We're fine. That's that's nice to hear. Uh, but you're not going out of the doors of the 21st century anytime soon, <laughs> clearly. No, I'm not. I, uh, I'm looking ahead. I've got a project with Chuck D. I've done some music for a South African short film. Um, I'm going forward. Yeah. And you play jazz. You've played at the Blackman Jazz Concerts. And, at, and uh, I think next spring I'm going to do an album with Adam Holzman, who was the son of... Uh, Jack Holzman, who signed us to Elektra Records, who played with Miles Davis. Wow, he's a really good player, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, it sounds so. You're still you're yeah. not you're not retiring. You're still making music. Yeah, on 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 your your terms and schedule. We're talking with John Densmore, drummer of the Doors. The Doors unhinged. Jim Morrison's legacy goes on trial. Um, you write about the poignancy of seeing Morrison's life go off the rails because of alcoholism. And how difficult you, my impression is, correct me if I'm wrong, you were sort of you were um, the most pointed in saying, you know, his life is destroyed. It's really it's it's not going to work in the condition that he's in. And did you feel like you took heat for that, for sort of calling it as you saw it with with the dissolution of Jim Morrison? Well, Larry, I, I lobbied to get off the road uh, for about a year Um because we were so good live, and I saw that disintegrating. And I, I, I didn't know he had a disease, you know. There were substance abuse clinics, but they weren't cool. You know, Eric Clapton and Eminem weren't doing it yet. And so I, I knew there was an elephant in the room, and I was like, God, we've got, a, we, we've got control in the studio. If he's too loaded, we go home. Uh, in front of 10,000 people, oh, it was so beautiful. Let's just stop this till he gets cleaned up. If we have a few less records, so what? Yeah. Um, but Jim was one of those creative and self-destructive souls that just was like a shooting star. Yeah. Yeah. When you said that, you thought he'd be able to come back? You thought he'd get himself together? Well, I think I, people asked me if he was around today, would he? And I, I used to say, no, he's a kamikaze drunk. I, I've changed that. I think he's smart. He, he, he would have cleaned up, you know? So uh, I want people to think know of that. all the music that could have been written in all those oh, years. There you go. Thank you so much, John. Great to have you with us. Congratulations on the new book. And thanks for sharing about this period of your life. Real pleasure, Larry. Thank you. John Densmore, The Doors Unhinged, Jim Morrison's Legacy Goes on Trial as we listen to one of my favorite Doors songs of all time. Riders on the storm Is his voice ever better than on this track? No. Yeah, it's incredible vocal performance. 
It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez, inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price. After escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Air Talk. Great to have you with us. I'm Larry Mantle. We've got a lot to talk about this hour coming up a little bit later. SAG after where we stand on the strike, and we're going to hear what uh, our expert journalists have to say about it. Maybe the strike coming to an end soon. We certainly hope so for everybody involved. But we continue our week long series devoted to veterans with day three of our five-day series looking at benefits for veterans. And they are many, from health care to mental health services, uh, services for veterans with disabilities. And, of course, we have benefits for housing as well as educational benefits. Joining us to talk about the range of them is Leo Shane third Deputy Editor of the Military Times. He covers Congress, Veterans Affairs, and the White House. Leo, good day have you with us again. Thanks so much. No, thanks for the invite back. So let's start with with these range of benefits and how does what's available for veterans now uh, compare to what historically has been available? Yeah, it's it's hard just to, to, to jump in there because as you said, there's there's so many different benefits that are out there and we've seen them. We've seen them grow over the years. We've seen things increase. You know, I think a lot of Americans who aren't veterans are familiar with the GI Bill and maybe VA home loans, and they have some general sense that there are medical benefits out there. But uh, Congress, since since 2001, has really, um, since the start of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, has really focused on finding ways to expand those benefits to uh, to reach out to more veterans and to make them more generous. So, um, you know, one of the one of the biggest ones is the post 9-11 GI Bill that was passed in 2008. And that took the old GI Bill, which provided some money to go to college, but often not enough to pay for a college degree in, in today's dollars. Um, now it's a, a full ride at state uh, state universities. It uh, covers three uh, 36 months worth of tuition, has generous housing uh, benefits uh, that go with that, book stipends, other support services. Um, so that's an example of something that's really really changed over the years um, and and really is uh, 
changing the lives of veterans with with what's available. And is is part of what's been the impetus for, uh, say, the educational uh, benefits and increases there, that it is an all-volunteer military and that they've had to offer more just as a way of attracting more people to do military service? That's part of it. Part of it has been, you know, that idea of how do we get the best and the brightest, what makes it attractive and, um, and you know, how do we, how do we keep retaining, keep bringing in that, that good talent. But it, it also is a recognition of, uh, of the sacrifices that, that folks have made. You know, I, there was talk about expand, you know, improving GI Bill benefits uh, in the 80s and in the 90s, but I don't think it got a lot of traction because there wasn't an, a major war. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan really pushed lawmakers to go even further and find ways to, to make these education benefits more generous to to recognize the sacrifice these folks made. You know, I, I, we talk a lot of, in terms of what veterans get, but um, but there is a, the, the veterans organizations will point out that the country gets a lot from veterans making successful transitions out of the military. For the dollars that are put into the GI Bill, uh, the return on successful uh, um, transitions to new jobs, the, the benefits of the, the workforce, that helps the American economy. So it's, you know, they see it as, as a cycle. It's not just something that is that is given out of uh, the generosity of the country's heart or out of out of guilt. It's also an investment in folks who have gotten very specific training, but um, can help uh, work their way back in society and, and make American society better. We're talking with Leo Shane, the third deputy editor of Military Times, covering Congress, Veterans Affairs and the White House. I'd like to hear from you if you are a veteran of military service or have a close family member who is a veteran of military service, to share with us what benefits have been most helpful, what are some of the areas where you found obstacles being able to to gain access to the benefits, or maybe they haven't really in the real world uh, provided the kind of benefit you expected they would. We don't have time for long and involved stories just because it's a this is a short segment, but I would like to hear from you if there's a particular benefit that just uh, has been terrific for you, maybe was uh, something that encouraged you to go into the military and it's paid off as you hoped, share that with us, what it was. Similarly, if there's something you felt like there was a bit of a bait and switch, maybe it wasn't what you'd anticipated, please share that with us. But again, keep it very succinct. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or email us at ATCOMMENT at LAS.com. Please include your location and first name. Also with us is Louis Strong, who's staff attorney at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. Louis, thank you for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you get a lot of, of veterans, I'm sure, who contact your organization because of, of um, uncertainty, where to turn, or even difficulty in getting fulfillment of their benefits. And what areas do you see that most commonly? Uh, typically, we see those uh, uh, veterans seeking uh, veterans' uh, disability benefits. Disability? Yeah, particularly with serv- uh, what's called service-connected compensation. So that's for uh, conditions that arose uh, during service and have continued on into uh, the present. And what are some of the areas where there might be grayer areas? I mean, for example, if someone is wounded in combat, that may be comparatively black and white, but there may be others that are stress-related or have to do with something that doesn't involve any combat. Are those the ones that are more difficult to to get attention for? Exactly. Uh, A lot of our 
a lot of the issues that we see are um, uh, veterans seeking compensation for mental health uh, issues, and that could be resu the result of a, an assault or a personal assault. It could be a, a sexual assault in uh, nature. Um, and so the evidence uh, that's required to uh, establish service connection, it can be very difficult because a lot of these assaults go unreported. Uh, Congress has recognized that. So they have, in the past uh, couple of decades, they've uh, Past laws stating the t sorts of uh, circumstantial evidence they can use yeah. to uh, to show that the the purported assault actually occurred. And it's got to be difficult for the clients that you're dealing with because it brings up things that for them um, may be difficult to go into detail as they build their case or appeal a decision about disability claims. Correct. Uh, one of the most challenging tasks as a veterans advocate is like understanding. Like, uh, in a lot of instances, you're re-triggering yeah. uh, a lot of the, the veterans' uh, tr previous trauma. Um, it's, so it's, you have to be, understand uh, how to effectively communicate and be patient with uh, with the veteran. And they have to be very sensitive sure. yeah, to what they're going through. That's Louis Trong, who's staff attorney at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. And he can answer some of your questions about disability claims, for example, about other benefits available to veterans of military service. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Also with us, Elizabeth Curta, director of the U.S. Government Accountability Office's Education Workforce and Income Security Team. Her expertise includes veterans' disability benefits. Elizabeth Curta, thank you very much. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me. So what are some of the ways that the VA uh, is trying to um, do better with veterans seeking uh, disability claims or, or in dealing with uh, physical or mental health disabilities that need ongoing treatment? Sure. Um, uh, the VA, I mean, for, for decades, really, has been um, challenged by the workloads that they face. They get millions of claims every year, and um, they uh, can ha at times have difficulty keeping on top of the workloads and preventing backloads. So they are backlogged. So they are really trying hard to get ahead of those uh, situations by doing um, better planning for potential workloads. So... Um, I think one thing they're really working on is just um, improving their workflow so that people don't have to wait a long time to get their claim processed. Um, the other areas we've looked at recently are um, issues involving differences and and how claims uh, are being processed and in terms of the rates of, of successful claims. And we looked recently at um, differences in uh, by uh, racial and ethnic groups, and also um, whether you are in the National Guard and Reserves versus the active duty mil military. And we did find some differences, and that's an area that the VA has a lot of work to do in. Yeah, and what uh, just elaborate a bit, please, on, on what those differences were between active and reserve. Yes, we found, uh, we looked back about 10 years, and we found um, a substantial differences in the approval rates for claims by the National Guard and Reserves compared to the active duty military. Um, for example, um, it just uh, more, most recently in 2021, uh, the active duty military claims were approved at the rate of 90%, and the National Guard and Reserves were approved at the rate of 77%. And these differences persisted um, over time, sort of regardless of the different factors that we looked at, like rank or military service or wartime service. Um, 
lots they, those differences were there every way we looked at the data. And does that also look at physical versus mental health disability? Yes, uh, we broke it down by uh, type of disability and saw those differences as well. Yeah, and, and so it, has it been more challenging for veterans uh, or reserve military, uh, as Lewis was just talking about, to, to get a favorable disposition of a claim when it involves a mental health issue? Um, most likely, yes. Uh, we didn't look at that specific um, causal factor, but we did look at the factors that um, kind of uh, experts said will will get in the way of a of a, a reservist getting um, their claim approved, and one of them had to do with um, you know how the reporting of of health issues. So um, it, it, there can be special challenges that um, reservists face, and being able to report. Um, mental trauma um, or things like that. Um, and there is a sort of a culture against uh, reporting um, uh, health issues in general for the reservists. What are the range of benefits available for someone who is claiming a disability? Um, they're very substantial. They, they, first of all, there's compensation for someone who um, uh, incurred an injury or an illness during their period of active duty and, and it's been sustained and it's um, you know, monthly compensation, but they also qualify for um, uh, priority in terms of health care at a VHA facility. Um, not every veteran has, has the highest priority uh, for care there, and the more, um, more highly rated you are for disability, the higher your priority. Um, you qualify for um, special um, education benefits, such as the Veteran Readiness and Employment Program, which is geared toward veterans with disabilities. And a lot of people don't realize this, but the program is very similar to the GI Bill in that it will pay for college and has very similar um, financial benefits, but also provides supports if you have a disability. Um, and then a pensions. Um, if you are um, elderly and um, sort of low in your assets and you are a veteran, um, you could potentially qualify for um, pension benefits. And for the educational benefits, uh, Elizabeth, is, is that something where it can be targeted specifically uh, toward finding a, a profession or the kind of work that can fit with the person's specific disability? Exactly. And, and that's how it differs from the GI Bill, that um, a veteran would work with a counselor to um, take into account their disabilities um, and their, you know, background, their education, and come up with a plan um, for a career path and providing, um, you know, either training or education to help accomplish um, the veterans' goals. Again, I'd love to hear from you. If you are a veteran of military service, please share with us which benefits have been most helpful. Are there benefits that you thought would be available to you that for some reason weren't? And uh, very succinctly, please share with us what the barrier was to that benefit that you thought fit your particular circumstance. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Mark in West Hollywood said, I'm a combat veteran. The VA healthcare system is a double-edged sword. While it's convoluted in many ways, it's also provided me undeniable assistance. Re 
Recently, I had a heart issue. The VA covered everything, ambulance, cardiologist, and testing. That's Mark in West Hollywood. Mary Beth in Laguna Woods says my husband is in the Coast Guard. He joined at 18 with the intention of going through law school. He did that, ending up working for the Coast Guard as an attorney, then the private sector. Now he has a great retirement and medical benefits. It's been great. That's Mary Beth in Laguna Woods. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Sean emailed us, I want to bring it to your attention. Veteran claims against the service die with the veteran. Example, consider a veteran who has a claim for benefits for an in-service injury, such as being wounded in a training accident. The veteran applies for benefits to which she or he is entitled when awarded monthly cash benefits plus a lump lump payment retroactive to the date the claim was filed. But if the veteran dies before the claim's resolved, that claim disappears. The veteran's family is unable to continue it and receive the retroactive payments. So if the veteran dies before the claim is resolved, uh, then uh, there is no payment. This is unique to the VA, which has an adjudicative system independent of the one used by the rest of us. Contrast that to what would happen with a, if a worker were injured on the job. Louis Trong, you want to respond to that? Is, is there any redress for the family if the person going through the claims process dies? There is some, but I, but it is true. There is a recurring saying uh, amongst the veteran community, uh, particularly those who have gone through the VA claims process, that the VA is just waiting for them to die. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but there are some um, avenues for the, the the family to receive benefits uh, in that situation, uh, particularly if a veteran dies of a, a condition that's deemed to be service connected. Uh, the surviving spouse can be eligible to receive what's called death and indemnity compensation benefits or DIC benefits. Um, and so it's uh, the VA will pay uh, about a lump sum payment of about eleven to thirteen hundred dollars a month. Um, so it's it's not nearly as generous as um, the benefit that would be received for the veteran if if, if uh, the, claim, the veteran has if, survived correct. through the end of the claim process. Elizabeth Curta of the General Accountability Government Accountability Office. Anything to add to that? No, I think Lewis um, Lewis covered it well. Um, that's that's my my same understanding. All right. We'll continue our conversation with our expert guests. We're talking about Veterans Benefits Day 3 of our five-day series devoted to veterans all this week. Tomorrow, we're going to open up the phones for veteran listeners to talk about uh, some of the challenges in reorienting to civilian life, uh, ways that they found to be able to boost feelings of connection to the world, ways that they kept contacts alive with their fellow service members. Even once they were out of service. 866 893 5722. Today we're talking about benefits of a wide variety, a chance for you to talk with our experts about them, what benefits were particularly helpful, which ones didn't end up being what you hoped or thought they would be. 866 893 5722 or email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. We're talking about the range of benefits available for veterans, some of the challenges that vets might have had in, in getting those benefits fulfilled, 
also circumstances where the benefits were were tremendously helpful, whether it's educational, buying a home, medical, mental health services, uh, disability benefits. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Joshua Ingwood said, I'm a recipient of VR and e-benefits. If it wasn't for these benefits, I wouldn't have been able to go back to school or have access to health care. That's Joshua in Inglewood, 866-893-5722. Jim in Anaheim said, one of the things I found out, nobody told me, is that you can reuse the GI Bill. You have to pay off the first one, but then it becomes available again. I used it to buy a home, paid that one off, and then used it to buy a second home. Leo Shane the third deputy editor of Military Times, I didn't realize you could use it multiple times. Yeah, that's the that's the VA home loan um, uh, program, and yes, you are eligible to use it multiple times. It's uh, I've talked to quite a few veterans who've bought a house, paid it off, moved into another house, been able to use that again, and uh, you know it's a real uh, again a real boon for the veteran and a real boon for the community to be able to uh, have these veterans come in and and be able to afford homes, be able to become members of the community. Leo, what's your sense of of for some of these benefits, particularly education and homeowners benefits? The, how big a role that they play in attracting people to the all-volunteer military? They're pretty significant. The uh, The education benefit in particular, when they passed the post-9-11 GI Bill, that was seen as a major recruiting tool for them because you are looking at young people who are, who are seeing the, the rapid rise in the cost of education and are seeing a path um, maybe for them to go to school afterwards or very importantly with the, with the post 9-11 GI Bill, the ability to transfer that to their kids. So if you, uh, I forget the exact numbers now, but I believe it's if you're in for six years and you re-up, um, you can transfer those benefits to a spouse or to a child. So um, when you're talking about long-term family planning, if the military is something you're interested in, that becomes suddenly a, a really important tool to, to do your family planning and for the military to be able to hold on to some of the talent that, that they've developed and that they've, they've trained there. Um, so definitely, you know, VA benefits is one of the things that recruiters talk about. I don't know that it's always a major factor i think you know there's there's a lot of things that go into the decision to to join the military um patriotism and and the uh the ability to serve your country are certainly major factors too but it's it's something that that uh service members know about and and talk about when they're looking at what's my long-term planning what's my my step ahead oh good i know i've got some home loan help here. I know I'll be able to go back to school if I need it. I know if I get hurt, I should be able to get my benefits as frustrating as sometimes that process can be. So, um, so it's a, it's a point of conversation. Uh, this is a bit tangential, but Leo is just curious, you know, anecdotally, there's so many people I, I, I've come in contact with who joined when they were young. And one of the reasons that they give is that they, they felt like they needed direction in their life. They needed a certain order. Maybe they weren't coming from a highly stable family home life. And they were looking to the military to, to help them grow up and to gain independence. And I don't know whether that's something that's formally studied, but it, is that your sense that that still is a significant draw, particularly for younger enlistees? There is, there is quite a mix in there. You also, I mean, look, think back to when you were 17 or 18 and trying to figure out what you were going to do with your life. Sometimes it's not a matter of 
you know, you being irresponsible or, or needing some sort of new structure. Sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, college doesn't seem to fit. You're not sure what you want to do. And this seems like it's an interesting opportunity. So, um, so I, you know, this, this is one of the things that the military struggles with right now um, as they're having recruiting problems is figuring out what are going to be the right notes to hit. What are the things that they can, can change and build up? Um, certainly um, uh, various bonuses and various uh, enlistment incentives are always going to help uh, bring more folks in, but you know, how do you appeal to that? You know, this is this is the potential for a career. This is something that's different from college. This is something that can that can that can build you up. Um, veterans are still very respected, if not totally understood in our society. So um, for a certain segment, that's going to be, you know, uh, something to reach out to, something to, to try and achieve is just to to be part of that fraternity. Um, so I, I, I think I think you get you get a lot of that mix in there. I think sometimes we drop into the stereotype of. Oh, it's a, it's a lot of folks who are who are in there because they couldn't get their lives together and they're just trying to figure it out. And I think that's a pretty pretty small number of folks who who see this as a as an opportunity of last resort. But for a lot of folks, you know, college is college is intimidating, and this is this is something that provides structure and provides a steady paycheck and provides yeah. a real a real value in your life, a real purpose to your life. So that's that's something very noble to to be thinking about. Uh, how often uh, do we get veterans who start processes toward getting benefits and then drop it because it just becomes too onerous to deal with it? Lewis, do you have a, a sense of kind of what the attrition rate is in the process? Uh, I don't, because typically when they talk, come talk to me, they've made a dis- concerted decision to they've, they've, the they've, they've gone down all these avenues, right. I assume, before they contact you. They've tried to do this themselves. Uh, that's the, sometimes, but that's not always the case. Oh. Uh, sometimes we will get uh, calls from clients who are just interested in learning more about um, what kind of benefits are available to them. And, yeah. All right. Louis Strong is staff attorney at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. Elizabeth Curta directs the U.S. Uh, Government Accountability Office's Education, Workforce, and Income Security team. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have a sense? Of, does the government document how many people start um, applying for benefits, but maybe get frustrated and don't go all the way through. I'm not aware that they document that. They definitely can see um, who has um, uh, started a claim. They could. They probably do have that data. I'm not sure that they they track it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it. it um, they definitely have the data on who who has filed a claim and who is um, you know had, was successful and who was denied, and, and they have a lot of data around that. Lauren emailed us, my father-in-law was a World War II vet, had a fairly debilitating stroke, very hard on my mother-in-law. He could go stay at the VA for two or three weeks a year to give her a break. For him, it was sort of like going to camp. That's Lauren. Anne in Westminster emailed, my 95-year-old dad served in the U.S. Army in Korea from 1950 to 52. He still lives at home. Where can I get information about benefits that might be available to him? That's Anne in Westminster. Lewis, any advice on where he can, where she can find that out? I'm sorry. What was the uh, benefits for her 95-year-old dad. She wants to know what might be available as a Korean War vet. Uh, so, uh, 
so what she could do is contact the um, Veterans uh, Advocacy organ Organization. So in Orange County, there's an organization called Veterans Legal Institute. Uh, they're based out of, I believe, Tustin. Um, they, can, uh, they can talk to her about what kind of benefits that are available for uh, for her father. All right. Very good. Uh, Leo Shane, the third of, of Military Times, any other advice for her? No, actually, that's that's great advice because it is it is a, a real labyrinth of uh, of of trying to figure out what you're eligible for, what is out there. One of the biggest problems we see is the veterans simply don't simply don't know the transition classes as they get out of the military are often somewhat hectic and a little more focused on, you know, making sure you find a job, making sure you've got your basics out there, but actually having a good grip on all the benefits that might be available, all the resource services is it's something that a lot of veterans struggle with. So, um, so one of the things VA has tried in recent years is to improve their outreach to try and get vet centers out there. They've got several hotlines that are that are out there. That if you hop on the VA website, va.gov, you can see um, folks can call and just have have conversations about what's out there. But but really, your best resource is to contact you know a VFW, an American Legion, one of these veterans groups that's been really monitoring and involved in all of this uh, all of this work for years to be able to to talk to them and say, look, what what can help? What can you guys provide? What does the the federal government provide? And what might be the best match for for me? Again, if you have questions about any of the benefits that are available to veterans of military service, give us a call. If you yourself are a vet or if you have someone in your family that you're close to, you'd like some information about what's available. It could be health care, mental health services, disability benefits, educational housing, 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Megan and Redlands emailed, the post-9-11 GI Bill was able to be transferred from my father. 50% went to me, 50% went to my brother. It was a great help for my family. Leo, how does that work? So the way the system works is you have to serve for a certain number of years in active duty and then establish your dependents, either your spouse or your children, um, and agree to serve one more term. So most folks, after they've served 10 years, after, they have, uh, after they've filled out the right paperwork and everything, they'll be able to transfer that at some point down the line. And usually this is not something, again, we're talking about veterans who are joining now, a little bit younger, you know, they may not have kids who are who are already looking at college, but they're looking down the line. They're looking at some point in the future and trying to figure out how they're going to pay for these costs. This is a very generous cost. 50% of your college tuition um, is is a significant amount for a lot of families, yeah. especially families that are. So so um, it became a, that, that was less of a recruiting tool and more of a retention tool um, for the military because they saw these, these these mid-career folks and said, hey, if you stay with us, if you don't use your GI Bill and go get another job, you'll be able to give this to your family um, and help pay for that. And we get to keep you. We get to keep your expertise. So um, so this is a, it's a major selling point of the of the post 9-11 GI Bill is that it's not only benefiting veterans, but it's benefiting your family. Something the Montgomery GI Bill, its predecessor, you couldn't do. That was really only yeah. for the service member to use. What about um, benefits for buying a home? How extensive are they, Leo? It's uh, it, it's it's 
I mean, it depends on where you are, but the, the rates that you can get are, are substantially um, reduced uh, in terms of interest rates, in terms of uh, things like having to put less money down. In most cases, you don't have to put any down if you're, you're a veteran. It's the, the government is, is backing you as your line of credit. So um, so it's it's you know, it doesn't it doesn't all of a sudden make your house cost you know, half as much on, on the day that you're buying it. But over the, the course of the uh, the life of the, your loan, um, it's easier to pay that off. You're going to see lower payments. And it's also easier to close in some cases. Now, the, the knock on the, the VA home loan benefit has been that a lot of realtors don't like it because there's extra paperwork, because there's extra hoops to jump through, and it can be uh, a little more cumbersome, especially in a quick housing market, to, to get that done and to move quickly on things. But you know, from the financial side, from the home buyer side, if they can use that, Again, substantial savings, you know, a few hundred bucks each month adds up quickly over a, over a 30-year home loan. So it's a, it's a real financial boom to those individuals. Yeah, Lindsay, our producer is line producing, said that uh, she and her fiancé were only able to buy their condo thanks to his access to the GI Bill as, as a veteran. And, you know, that's in a housing market like Southern California, any advantage you can get with interest rate or down payment is going to be huge. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Leo Shane III, Deputy Editor of Military Times, Louis Trong, who's staff attorney at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, and Elizabeth Curta directs the U.S. Government Accountability Office's Education, Workforce, and Income Security Team. Her expertise includes veterans' disability benefits. I want to hear from you. If you are a veteran of military service, you have any questions about available benefits, if you just like to share what a difference it's made to access one or more of those benefits or frustration you've had with having access to benefits that you think you're entitled to, let us know, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle with our guest, Louis Trong of the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. He's staff attorney with them. Elizabeth Curta of the Government Accountability Office and Leo Shane III of Military Times. All of them are sharing their expertise about military 
Benefits. It's day three of our five-day week-long series devoted to veterans. Uh, We've been getting tremendous feedback from listeners on this series, and thank you for that. We really appreciate your encouragement and uh, the fact that that this uh, series that we're doing is meaningful to you. Ron in Long Beach, good to have you with us. I understand uh, both you and your father are veterans. Right. Um, so my dad and I are both veterans. He's a Vietnam era veteran and I was a Desert Storm veteran. Um, and my dad, he recently uh, required 24 hour care. Um, he was getting elderly and such. And so I took on that role for him and uh, was trying to find services to the VA. I'm in, I'm uh, in the VA. He, he was not. And, um, so what happened was I called the VA or I you know, reached out to the VA and said, um, cause I heard about they have a respite care program. And so I said, I'd like to get respite care. I'm taking care of my father. He's a veteran. I'm a veteran. Can we get some help with respite care? And they said, no, you can't because your father isn't enrolled in the VA program. And I said, yes, but, um, he is a veteran and the respite care program is really for me. It's not for, it's not for him. Um, I'm really the beneficiary of the respite yeah. care because yeah. it, it helps me to, you know, attend to um, needs in my life while I'm attending to the needs of his life. And so it was really frustrating. And, um, and the person that I ended up speaking with, um, there, there is, you know, I was a little indignant about it, but their response to, the, to uh, my frustration was, well, how can we help you? And I said, or like, how else can we help you? And I said, well, I mean, I, you know, we, that's such an open-ended question. Like, how else can you help me? I need, I need respite care. Like, that's, yeah, that's all that I need. And it seems like such a, such a, it seems like there's so many hurdles for veterans. And I, I don't understand why every veteran isn't automatically enrolled in the VA. Like, I, like that's beyond me. Like, yeah. why you should have to jump through? So, a Ron, let me just clarify. So, your father, yeah. he has his own health care separate than the VA, correct? Right, okay. right, right, exactly. So he never enrolled for, but he would, it sounds like given his tours, he would be entitled to VA medical care, correct? He would, but he, you know, he had a good job and he had good insurance. Sure, but, yeah. You know, as, as you're probably aware, like insurance doesn't, you know, provide for a lot of things and his insurance didn't provide for respite. Ron, hold on, please. Let's let's get some advice yeah. for you. Louis Trong, what advice would you give him? Oh, so first I would say, so it's just from my observation, it, it, uh, enrollment in VA healthcare is not a difficult process. Uh, typically, it can be done on the same day that um, you go to the VA um, medical center. Uh, you just need to provide what's called a DD-214. Um, it's, it's, it's a, essentially, it's a one-page uh, summary of uh, your military service, and it's essentially ident- it's proof that you are a veteran. And it wouldn't it wouldn't require his father to give up his current health care to do that, right? No, many veterans uh, have, have both dual or multiple. private uh, and VA insurance. So okay, so so Ron, you, could you enroll your father in the VA medical care system and then get the respite care for him? Ron, are you there? Yeah, the problem the problem with doing that is you know he's bedridden. You know, it's just, it's just not, it's not easy to get him to anywhere because he's, he's bedridden. You know, he's, he's in bed 24-7. And so to get him to a VA medical facility um, is, is not an easy task, you know. Okay. And, uh, so you're looking you know, for respite care that would be in the home, it sounds like, home care. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, you know, the thing is, the thing is, is 
you know, with the VA, it's like, um, I just, you know, I just moved here to Long Beach a year ago. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, and I was already enrolled in the VA. And so I had to, when you move to a new location, you have to re-enroll in that new location. And so I, I enrolled in the location in February of last year. I'm just now seeing my first mental health appointment in December of this year wow. when I requested it in February of last year. So it's taken almost, almost two years. Year. Well, no, a year. It's almost oh, it was almost February of this year. year. Okay. Yeah. Ron, right. Ron, hold on, please. Leo Shane III, any advice for Ron? Yeah, look, he's he's voicing a lot of the frustrations that we hear. A lot of veterans do enjoy the the care they get when they when they can get into VA, but it's that that access issue that uh, that becomes the the real point of frustration. So, um, he had mentioned the idea of why why don't they just enroll everyone when they get out of the military? That that idea has been around for a while. Congress has been um, reluctant to embrace that. There are certainly some veterans organizations that push for that, but uh, but for now, that's just a it's really a, an issue to, to take up with lawmakers. It's not something VA can do without without special permission. Um, and this program in particular he's talking about, the Caregivers Program, I believe that's what the respite care is is through. The Caregivers Program has been um, great for folks who can get into it, but has been very difficult to get into. So these are... These are not uncommon problems that that he's running into. I know that's that's not really uh, any comfort or solution, but um, there should be some solace that it's it's not anything that that the caller's doing wrong or his family's doing wrong. This is this is a point of problem. Um, I would I would push VA to see if there is a way to enroll his father without getting him there. I know the 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 difficulties that are there. VA is cognizant that they have a elderly veteran po- population that that has problems. It will not be easy. It would be great if there was just a box and a and a copy of DD two fourteen you could mail somewhere, but. Um, but it may be worth doing that to to get the other advantages and to um, and to find solutions. In the meantime, you know where VA does fall short, um, veteran service organizations often do fall, come up with other solutions. So, if your run-ins with VA have been difficult so far and frustrating, I would encourage you to see if there's a local um, disabled American veterans chapter or a local VFW chapter that, that you might be able to reach out to and just say, Hey, is there anything you guys can help me out with? Do you have any advice? Um, because they're going to have specific contacts. They're going to have some people who, who may be able to work on the ground a little quicker than, than any of us on the, on a radio show can help you out with. Right. But, um, but that might be another Avenue to just, just keep things going because um, cause it, it's, it's incumbent on him all of a sudden, right? This is, this is part of the problem is we have all these benefits. We have all this, this generosity, but the veterans have to get through the system to get to it first. And that's the, that's the point where, where we're at. Ron, we wish you all the best as you navigate the system. Uh, let me bring in the conversation real quickly, Richard and Tarzana, Richard, I've got about 30 seconds, but I know you want to talk about the GI bill and for education. That should be emphasized. I, I went to college. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I went 45 years ago. I started to go to college. And it was icing on the cake. Being a veteran helped me get a job at Lockheed Aircraft. But uh, to added benefits, college is expensive and books and tuition. So veterans should be appraised that, that they have these benefits to help them get back into society and get a, dare I say, more normal future occupation. 
All right, Richard, thank you very much. Jeannie in Studio City said, my mother found out before my father passed that they were eligible to be buried in a veteran cemetery because of my father's World War II service. The cost of the site was covered, and my mother can be buried there with him once she passes. That's Jeannie in Studio City. He has a case for uh, an uncle of mine who fought at the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. He was extremely young at, at the Battle of the Bulge and was able to be uh, buried at the military cemetery in Riverside as a result. Uh, Frank emailed, I have a disabled cousin uh, who's collecting his father's Social Security along with SSI. His father served in World War II, was one of the longest-held POWs because he was stationed in Guam. He has since passed. Is his son entitled to any benefits? Louis, do you know whether the son would be entitled? Uh, typically not. Uh, so, um, tip, uh, so for for children of veterans, uh, they're not going to be eligible for uh, benefits through the VA um, uh, unless they're being considered disabled as a child. Um, however, um, if the father is, dis- is is a disabled veteran in the state of California, they. Um, uh, there are benefits available can be available to him. So if it's uh, if the father's a disabled veteran um, and the child decides to, yeah, it sounds like the father has died right. and that the that the now adult child was disabled from birth. Okay, um, so if the father had passed away from a service connected compensation uh, or from service connected condition, um, they would uh, the, the child would be eligible to receive. Um, uh, death and if it was service related, but if it's not service if it related, wasn't. okay, great. Thank you so much. That's Louis Strong, staff attorney, Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. Leo Shane, the third deputy editor of Military Times, and Elizabeth Curta, U.S. Government Accountability Office. Thank you all so much for being with us. Our veteran series continues tomorrow, right here on Air Talk. Coming up, the very latest on the SAG after a strike. Hopes are running high that a deal might be reached soon. We'll talk with Dominic Patton, senior editor of deadline. If anybody's got the word, it's Dominic. He'll share it with us when we come back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by senior editor for uh, Deadline, Dominic Patton, Dominic, we've been uh, on the edge of our seat for several days now, uh, awaiting potential agreement on terms between the AMPTP, representing studios and streamers, and the actors who are on strike. What's the latest that uh, your sources have told you? Well, the latest, Larry, is that 118 days into the strike, it's not over. That we know for sure. What we also know is happening is right now the SAG-AFRA negotiating committee led by Chief Negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland and, of course, President Fran Drescher are still going over their latest proposals that they have received in response to their latest comprehensive counter from the studios. And they have been going back and forth and back and forth with this. We do know that there has been definitely some tweaking and, and massaging and finessing of language. The AI language between the studios and the, and the guild are definitely getting closer and closer together, as well as there's some wage issues. But this is a stubborn situation, and if people are hoping, as so many people were hoping yesterday that it was going to be over, especially David Zasloff of Warner Brothers Discovery and Bob Iger of Disney, they were disappointed. And why do you say especially them? 
Well, if you ask David Zasloff right now, he spoke earlier today during the Warner Brothers Discovery uh, quarterly earnings report. He said, let me start by saying we're all hopeful we reach a resolution to the sag after strike. We made a last and final offer, which met virtually all of the union's goals. Earlier this week, we reported exclusively on deadline that Netflix's Ted Sarandos, I'm going to paraphrase ever so slightly, said in a meeting when they were presenting the uh, response to the Guild, they said, we didn't just come towards you, we came all the way towards you. But here's the problem. Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney have earnings reports today. And right now, Warner Brothers Discovery stock is being decimated. On, mm-hmm. by the market. Disney are also going to be, they're going to be releasing their report after the market closes this afternoon. And you can expect some very harsh questions and some very harsh numbers. The fact of the matter is there have been new, no, sh- no new shows to premiere this fall. There has been no new content. So while there might be some money saved, for instance, on marketing and promotion by these companies, they have not seen the kind of revenues that they would usually be seeing year after year for a strike that has gone on, if you put the WGA and SAG together, for six months. So, Dom, is, is it possible to parse between the strike-related revenue drop that the market is, is punishing Warner Discovery for versus longer-term concerns about the streaming business and all the competition in that space? Oh, I think very much so, Larry. And I I think they have to, and they know they have to. But I think at the same time, what you're looking at is you're looking at a situation where while you have the realities of, as you know, I've probably said on the show far too many times, linear dollars have not been translating that well. They're still digital pennies. So what they're trying to hope to to get streaming up to the kind of revenues they need it to, that's taking a while. Are they suffering all across the board? Well, of course they are, even though they had a huge hit in Barbie. But they're, they just don't have anything new out there, and it's hurting them. It definitely is starting to hurt them. Right. It's a grim outlook for your advertising all around. And why are you going to advertise if there's not a new product to use to help your product get sold? And and uh, I know that they're loath to release streaming numbers for particular series or films, but you know w- what do we see in terms of of subscribers? Are they starting to see a, a an attrition of subscribers because of the lack of new content? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, because I think there's a couple of different things happening here. Netflix and their earnings report just last week, they saw a, a nice big jump in subscribers. But of course, everyone has seen a bit of a jump, and not only in subscribers and partially for Netflix because they cut down on password sharing, but also they've also seen a jump in how much they're charging you. You know, Apple just raised their prices last week. Every, you know, what is once was HBO Max, now is Max, have raised their prices. Disney is raising their prices. Netflix raised their prices a few months ago. So they're all picking up money from that. In terms of the streamers, their pipeline is still there. But again, I come back to, because of the nature of the strike with the Actors Union, 160,000 member strong union, part of it is they don't have people promoting these shows. And honestly, when you have something like The Marvels coming out this weekend, which essentially is the sequel to Captain Marvel, Brie Larson, big hit for Disney, you know, highly anticipated transforming the Marvel Universe, which some people might say is fatigued and others might not. But they don't have Brie Larson out there on the red carpet. Yeah, they don't have yeah. any of the other stars out there on the red carpet. And so if you're trying to get in, trying to get attention, trying to get beyond just the core, the hardcore fans and get other people in, you, young girls who might not realize that this is a, an all-female-led superhero team-up, for, for lack of a better expression, you're just not going to get the kind of box office you're hoping for. You know, way back when SAG-AFTRA went on strike, 
President Fran Drescher made a very interesting comment. I don't know if you remember, but in the final days of the last bit of negotiations between the union and, and, and the AMPTP, studios asked for an additional 12 days. It was sort of like, let's maybe kind of see if we can calm, calm down, see if we can talk about some stuff, et cetera, et cetera. That didn't work. A federal mediator was brought in at the last minute. That didn't work. And they went on strike. And Fran Drescher said when she when they were talking about the strike, she said, I now think that they just used those 12 days so they could promote their movies. Now, I don't believe at the time that she actually said Barbie and Oppenheimer, but that's what she was talking about. And that's really the last time we've seen mm. some hits. So this is a real thing now. It, it's not something you can ignore and pretend that it's, oh, it's just going to last a little bit. This has been six months. Six months. Dom, be- a lot of time. Before we wrap, we've got like 45 seconds left. Do we know where they are on AI? Because understandably, each side concerned about setting a precedent that's going to bind them up as the technology evolves. Do we know where the dispute over AI is? We, we, we do to some degree, Larry, and you're entirely right. This isn't just for a three-year contract. This, this is going to be defining for a generation as this technology becomes predominant in the industry. We know they're moving closer together, but the guardrails that the Guild are seeking are not yet fully in place in their point of view. All right. Dom, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, the very latest. We know how well-sourced you are on this and appreciate you sharing it with AirTalk listeners. Thank you. Dominic Patton, Senior Editor of Deadline, joining us on AirTalk as he does quite regularly. Coming up next, it's NPR's Here and Now and a look at the five-year anniversary of the campfire which decimated the town of Paradise and killed so many residents of that northern California town. We'll hear about younger people who still live there and are attempting to rebuild their lives. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9, right after Morning Edition for the next Air Talk. Have a terrific day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.